This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast, and our sincerely in defense employs the actual Mount Etna. Our topic today is the role of chess in popular culture, most recently brought to our attention via the Netflix adaptation of Walter Tevis's novel, The Queen's Gambit, a Mark Lintonmeyer, fetal grandmaster, sorry player, now retired. I'm Erica Spires, and I'm excited to talk about the best show this year to feature an alcoholic with a chess problem. And I'm Brian Hurt, and at some point today, I'll be using the hippopotamus defense, the monkey's bum, and the toilet variation, though I expect those are mutually exclusive. And our guest. My name is JJ Lang. I am a becoming professional chess teacher, amateur chess player enthusiast, and perpetual graduate student in philosophy, now based out of Lincoln, Nebraska. You're actually an expert chess player, right? Like according to your rating, which I looked up. Yeah, the official U.S. chess categorization would put me as an expert in about the top two or three percent of active competitive players. Oh my gosh. But I'm a lot more self-conscious of how much better those other two or three percent of players are. (laughs) Which is why you're saying amateur. (laughs) Strong amateur. In Erica's parlance, you'd be a chess player with a philosophy problem. Which is accurate. Yes, it seems like when I was entering grad school and I was like, I could be a rock star or a professional philosopher. Like both of those have no career possibilities whatsoever. (laughs) Do you feel similarly about chess versus, uh, or is chess such a monumental thing now that being a chess teacher could be a easy bucks? I think I am having an easier time making a more comfortable living as a totally self-employed chess teacher than I would be as an adjunct or on the academic job market. What does that tell you guys? the adjunct life is really hard and ridiculous how little people get paid for so much work. It kind of started by accident because I was aware that I wasn't really sure if the academic life was for me. And I guess I haven't 100% decided, but I started to realize, you know, if I started marketing myself as a chess teacher, as I was getting back into it, that would be a much more enjoyable way to pick up bucks than, you know, trying to get my way around. I guess at the time it would have been Chicago without a car to try an adjunct at a bunch of colleges. Well, based on the chess movies I've seen and all the various eccentric chess teachers that show up in them, before I tell you how the bishops move, tell me what justice is and to kind of suck them into the philosophy thing and you can <laughs> pad out your time that way. All right, I have a, a question for you, you being a chess teacher. I, I'm bad at a lot of things and golf was one of them and I took some golf lessons and I didn't get any better. And as it happens, chess is another thing I'm just terrible at. With a couple lessons, could I get actually better, or is it a long and slow road? That's a great question. If you're really, really bad at chess, you could get a lot better with a couple lessons. If you have been taught a lot of basic principles, strategy, and whatnot, and have been practicing those for a few months, that's when the long, slow, arduous climb begins. All right, so it's a little bit more like Scrabble, because you can get really good at Scrabble really quickly by memorizing all the two-letter words. And the only strategy I know is just try to win or don't get humiliated, and I can't do either of those. So (laughs) here we go, folks. We don't need to get into a full chess lesson without a board right now, but there's lots of principles that like once you have a teacher explain it to you or if you even like search you know on youtube like how to start a game of chess chess opening principles or something and like a 20 minute video you'll have your mind blown with like oh pushing these pawns brings all these pieces into the game who previously had nowhere to move pushing those pawns doesn't if i push these pawns instead of those pawns if i put my pieces towards the middle where they have more options instead on the side where they have fewer options more good things happen and just like that you'll see a huge difference in your game because suddenly you have opportunities to do things. But once you learn that, that's when it gets hard. That is great. As you said that, I started seeing chess pieces on the ceiling. 
Oh my god. I assume everyone took their green pills for this. <laughs> why, oh why didn't I take the green pill? All right. Because we know that drugs definitely help you perform better at mental activities. <laughs> I, I guess I had heard that tranquilizers, could that be a thing that would help? Is there doping in chess of some sort? <laughs> Okay, the standard line is, of course not, but there is a tournament in the 80s where there is a British grandmaster, Tony Miles. I actually don't know the backstory. Oh, that's a pun, because I don't know how this happened, but he was playing a high-level chess tournament in incredible amounts of back pain, laying down on a stretcher, and totally doped up, and it was one of the best performances of the later part of his career. So there is some evidence that Back pain plus stretcher plus painkillers equals adventurous, good chess playing. Is this a trope then? One of the things we wanted to look at was like the tropes of playing chess. The movie I watched to kind of go along with this was, it was all right. It was called The Coldest Game starring Bill Pullman. And it was a, it's actually a Polish film. And that was one of the things that happens. He has a drinking problem. And he plays really good chess when he's completely wasted, evidently, because there was something about he operates at a normal, like a more normal level, like he's able to handle things better <laughs> if he's just a little drugged up. Right. And I think that that is probably a trope that goes beyond just those two movies. Did you guys have any of those experiences when you watched supplemental materials? Well, the one that I focused on was Searching for Bobby Fisher, which is about children playing, and they are all <laughs> hopped up on Ritalin and Pop Rocks. So definitely. I also watched half of that somewhat true story of Boris Spassky and Bobby Fisher, but I couldn't get through it. So I can't really speak to it. I mean, the issue we're dancing around is that does chess use a special part of your brain such that shutting off other parts of your brain might actually help being an idiot savant of a sort that the parts of your brain that would normally be for social functioning have all been reprogrammed <laughs> for visualization. And so you can see 12 moves ahead. And if I take Ginkloba or whatever, you know, you'll get three extra moves ahead. Is there any truth to that? Like from my experience, I've about as much experience with chess as I do with neuroscience. In other words, as a philosophy student, I looked at it a little and had a couple classes in it, but like I can't do any of it. I don't, you know, but I know enough to appreciate kind of what would be required <laughs> to get into it felt like like I'm good enough that I can play well against my kids. <laughs> like I know, okay, if I move that there, then that'll be in trouble. And if I don't, you know, I can set up something a couple, one move ahead. It just seemed like it was a, it's a knowledge pit that it's not anything that could be enhanced by drugs. It's a matter of studying all these strategies and understanding how all the squares in the board function together. And, you know, that you really need beyond that you know, it's not a raw intelligence test. And so my view of it seems to be against the thing that is portrayed in the movies as that, you know, they're these geniuses that have just some special insight that at least for a lot of it is, is a matter of study. I want to yes and that. <laughs> um, definitely not a raw intelligence chess. If you have any belief that like chess is just a pure measure of intelligence or ability, I encourage you to spend time around chess players. Add a few on Facebook <laughs> and just watch what happens. And that will... I think a lot of people realize that not every brain surgeon is a smart person when Ben Carson ran for president. And I think, think like similarly <laughs> for chess, it's like these are people who might be very, very good at a skill that for some reason most people associate with general intelligence. And no, no, no. Maybe there's some accidental correlation, but that's it. So yeah, huge amount of knowledge required. And even in Queen's Gambit, one thing I liked about the show is as much as Beth is painted as a savant, a prodigy, somebody who's brain is just wired perfectly for this game. She is always reading the books. 
She is always absorbing the knowledge. She is, as a younger player, resistant to picking up a lot of this knowledge. And only as she matures, other players are convincing her to do the stuff that she never wanted to do. So at the very least, it gets that right Mm -hmm. in that as much as she gravitates towards chess, naturally, there's a lot of knowledge to do. But I also think that drugs could help in a specific way in that learning how to focus out all the other noise and entirely focus on that huge amount of recall. I feel like things that help with creativity could give you different ways to recall or apply that knowledge once you've acquired it. I think that for some people, some sort of substance might be an easier thing to gravitate towards than like meditation or mindfulness. But the main thing is like, I totally understand the appeal of like needing something to tune out the noise of the world in order to focus and actually make use of that knowledge. But no, it's not the sort of thing where it's like you can suddenly morph into a great chess player by taking a tranquilizer. Does control of one's anxieties come into play at all? I mean, we always talk about we have the adrenaline burst that was meant to help us survive on the savannah, but doesn't really help us in our daily life when we get the flop sweats before a big presentation. And I wonder if being tranquilized to not feel the pressure of what's going on, not to cloud your thinking, but just to kind of get in that people talk about becoming better bowlers when they have that first beer, right? If there's anything to that at all. Absolutely. I'm somebody who just in general struggles with a lot of anxiety. And I found that like I have definitely gotten to the point where I was breathing incredibly fast and labored or like was feeling nauseous at critical moments of chess games, especially if I'm running out of time on my clock, which means that I have to make all of my decisions for the rest of the game pretty instantaneously. I feel like in those moments, yeah, if I was a little bit numb and mellow and able to like navigate better, I would probably have some better results. But on the flip side, I think what the best players are able to do is not just lose that, but actually harness it and like ride that adrenaline instead of be like throttled by it. And you will see there's one Russian grandmaster whose games I love. He just has a very dry sense of humor, Alexander Grishuk. But he is notorious for always getting down to mere seconds on his clock. He might start with two hours to play all his moves. And halfway through the game, his opponent has an hour left and he has 30 seconds. And then he just plays the rest of the game riding on it. You get like maybe 30 seconds back each turn and he just rides on it. And that's when he starts playing his best chess. And he's like, I think the best description of that is he's an adrenaline junkie. If anything, he needs that pressure in order to play his best. Don't try that at home. Well, and that's like his process now, too. I'm sure like he's used to playing in that way. He's like, this is how I do it. You know, there there might be part of his brain that's like, this is how I have to do it because this is how it works. Yeah, but he needs that urgency in order to focus, to not drift. If you give him two hours, he will start seeing incredibly deep, irrelevant things, 30 moves out of the way or in variations that will never occur. And when that clock is really ticking down under a minute, that's when he focuses everything on the practical decision making. And he's probably dependent on that. So a question surrounding that is, When you talk about people seeing something happen 30 moves away, I would imagine there are many, many combinations of things that could happen. So after you think about what could happen, if I do this, then this, or if I do this, then this, then is it a matter of calculating the most likely thing? And so you should also be good maybe at statistics as well as predictions. The hardest part of thinking ahead, you know, like the dreaded question is like, how many moves can you see ahead? And world champion Magnus Carlsen has the best answer to that, which is as many moves as I need to. 
and you know, he's being glib, but like the real answer is like the real challenge isn't just seeing ahead. If you ask me to go down one continuation, I make this exact move, then they make that exact move, I make this exact move, and so on. I can probably carry that like one continuation on for quite a few moves. But the real problem is in most games, that first move, they might have multiple responses that look really good. And the skill that you acquire is one of figuring out not just which of those is the most likely, but figuring out of all the moves in the potential space, which ones are reasonable to consider, which ones respond to the threats that are being made, which ones do enough to be worth consideration at all. And of those, which are the ones worth taking seriously, which are the ones that you really have to go about. And so there's some positions, it's really only about seeing one move ahead and making sure that that one move, nothing they have is particularly scary. And other times it's going to be, you know what their one move is, maybe you've put them in check and they have literally one move that gets out of check to save their king. So the question of what they're going to play next isn't the mystery at all. But if you don't have a very good follow-up to that, you shouldn't play the check. And finding if you have a good follow-up to that might take 10 turns. So the real question is one of figuring out how much foresight, how much calculating you need to be doing and how many options are available and figuring out what options to anticipate. So statistics, not as much, but it's definitely more of like some sort of qualitative analog to statistics where it's like, okay, I figured out what pieces I'm trying to activate, what squares I'm trying to control. So now I need to figure out of the 50 or so moves they could play, which ones adequately respond to those things. And of those, how good are the response? And presumably you have built heuristics for that over time and can do that sensitivity analysis just naturally. And you just automatically see some things that are dead ends. I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to bother with that. And I think early on, and they get at this even with Queen's Gambit set in the 60s, talking about computers learning. And early on with machine intelligence, the idea that a machine could tell smart moves from stupid moves, you know, that wasn't where things were early on. And now that's partly how computers are able to do so well, is they are able to learn and not waste their time on dead ends and bad decision trees. Yeah, and I think even like, you know, the first time that Beth is playing the janitor, she gets checkmated by literally the oldest trick in the book, a four-move checkmate. And that's just like one sort of decision tree where it's like she very quickly learned, oh, this square next to my king, it is only covered by the king. If Mr. Scheibel puts two attackers on it, that is a checkmate. And now there's like a new process to the thinking of like, I need to respond to things pointing here that didn't exist previously. And people have different speeds of picking that up. One kid I teach, his parents seem to have a very slow speed because he keeps doing it to them. And so being able to like build more and more complex trees and being able to figure out what sorts of things are dead ends, that's a good term for it. That helps a lot. That seems to be a obligatory scene in a movie or TV show about a chess genius as a kid losing their first game, right? Like, yeah, enjoy beating this kid. I know, right, Max happens to him in, in the park and searching for Bobby Fischer, but don't plan on beating him for too long. Erica, I feel like we've all given our priors except you. What, what are you coming to the table with here? Was, oh, did this play a significant role in your, your upbringing? Chess wasn't really played in my house. Too much singing. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know. I mean, we played a lot of checkers and Chinese checkers. I think we had a chess set my dad played, but I don't think he ever taught us how to play, which I think is strange because dad's a smart guy and you'd think that he'd want to 
teaches kids the game of chess, but it just wasn't a thing. And I think for me, had my brothers done it, I would have done it because I wanted to do anything they did. So I did play a little bit in college. My husband taught me basics and we played for a few months and I was terrible, of course. I'd never won anything, but I, I did get better as it went along. I mean, there were a couple times when I saw that he actually had to think about what he was doing next. And that was a very exciting moment just to have that little win. You know, I wasn't being incredibly predictable. A serious gamer, your husband is. so that <laughs> All of the games, yes, very serious. Before I actually watched The Queen's Gambit and didn't have this fresh in mind, I, I put on our discussion sheet, you know, why chess in particular? Why not other board games? That there are, you know, of course, just the history of it, but there are plenty of, I'm just a, more of a fan of more complicated, <laughs> in quotes, you know, officially more rules. Terra Mystica is one of mine that I own that I can barely get anybody ever to play with me. And like, that's the kind, I like, if I go to Gen Con, I will schedule my time to play these elaborate $120 games if because they have so many damn pieces and things. But there's something about, you know, this combination of, of simplicity and certainly these things like Queen's Gambit sell you on how much of a rabbit hole there is in this. Whereas I don't know if something like Terra Mystica, if it was around long enough and popular enough that just because there are many, many possible moves and many pieces involved, whatever among those, if that's not the best example, if the rules are so elegantly designed, clearly there's just the weight of history. But yeah, it seems like a, a silly question now to me after I've seen these things and they've sold it to me. I think that's a great question, especially now that it's been sold to you. I don't think it answered your question. It's just like now you just quote unquote get it. The normal stock response is something like it being unusual to find a game that you can learn the rules for in about 20 minutes and then spend the rest of your life trying and failing to master. Or even if you manage to master, you realize how much more there is to it than that. And I think there is something intoxicating to that. The amount of literature on the game, the amount of research that has been done and evolved over time of trying to figure out how to play a good game of chess, I think might be something that helps with that of like, you're not at least now reinventing the wheel in the sense that once you start to learn how to play, there are so many books that have been written and then discredited and then replaced that will talk about next steps of strategy, what exactly to do in this position. You can buy entire books that start in positions that only arise if each player plays the precise first seven moves listed on the title. So that kind of, um, the amount of information, I think, for something that is so simple to learn is intoxicating. But yeah, I'm totally with you. If Terra Mystica had that, would it have the same effect? I don't see why not, but I think there is something about the simplicity that at least creates that initial pull. JJ, what do you or anyone really think of the facet of chess where there is no chance involved other than whether you go first or second it's very much between the two players and it's the exact opposite of what makes watching poker exciting because you don't know what card is coming up next but with chess the pieces are sort of secondary and of course we see blindfold chess being played because you don't really need a board you just need to know where the pieces are in your own head in order to play and i think that forces the drum in a certain direction that any game that has any amount of luck at all involved just can't duplicate. And we have things like Go or Checkers down to Tic-Tac-Toe, right? So ones that are so simple that are not even worth talking about. But chess seems to be complicated enough and accessible enough that people can relate to it. Yeah, absolutely. And Go is like the definite other comparison to make a game that like I've only recently tried to start to learn. And I've been finding it really hard to learn, I think, because my brain's been wired in such a chess way. But yeah, I think there is definitely something about games of perfect information that's appealing to me. Although I feel like you have to be playing at a very high level for chess to actually be a game of perfect information. 
you know, just because you can figure out what the best moves are in any position, you also have to know that your opponent is at least trying to approximate best strategy (laughs) in order to anticipate that. And then you also have to be mindful of your own strengths and weaknesses of a player. If seeing precise variations 10 moves ahead, where every move you have to hold in your head correctly and find the best move is not your strength, then maybe aiming for the best move isn't your best strategy if the best move requires playing to your weak point. Whereas if you can just play stodgy, stubborn, and safe, and you don't really give away your pieces by mistake that often, maybe that's best strategy even if it's not best move. So like that's kind of my pet peeve on chess as a game of perfect information. It's like, I think I told my friend who's a poker player, I was trying to get him to get into chess, and he said he doesn't like games of perfect information. And I think I said that like chess is a game of perfect information for maybe 20 people in the world. <laughs> But the appeal of that, you have no one to blame but yourself when things don't work out, I think is satisfying that instead of being able to just like blame the cards and be like, I played that hand correctly and it didn't work out to kind of be like, all right, time to go back to the lab. There's always more work I can do. There's a sense in which that sort of control is really nice. I guess that's what some people might say is beautiful about the game is the lack of luck. And we like to feel in control. Even if we're wrong, we'd like to know that we had something to do with it. I can beat Deep Blue 50% of the time in shoots and ladders. I'm pretty fucking good. (laughs) Mark, how many pieces did you say are in that game you were talking about? A lot. (laughs) I don't know. But I think that's part of it, too, is just the simple, you can grab a board, put your pieces inside, and it's transportable. And, And it's something that through the ages, people have been able to easily move from one home to another home if they had to leave. You know, I taught a class years ago on playing fiddle and why that became so popular. And that was a big thing is it's small. You can put it on a horse. You can, you know, you can carry it with you nice and easily. So it became popular in part because it was accessible. And as we see in Queen's Gambit, you know, you play enough and like the fact that every game starts in the exact same position, not only is it physically accessible, but like mentally, you can always prepare for your next game once you hold the pieces in your head, once you kind of remember the pattern. Okay, so white on right, queen always on her color, eight pawns on the second and seventh. You can play for like a few weeks and suddenly you know where the pieces are going to go and you can start thinking about that and holding that between games. So I think it's like portable in that kind of non-physical sense as Mm. well. We should talk more about some of this chess media. So I enjoyed, I think like most people, there's a reason why it's so damn popular, Queen's Gambit. Did anybody want to take a strong stance and say, no, its flaws outweighed its appeal? I loved it. Finding out that it was the same guy who did Godless. Then I was like, oh, yeah, that checks out. Those are similar in in certain ways. There's a mood to them. There's beautiful cinematography. It's not that there aren't flaws, but it's different than a lot of stuff you see out there. But I think also it definitely did have the look down. And I think part of the reason Mad Men was so popular was because it was set in this extraordinary time, both socially, like politically, and also just design-wise. There was such an eye for specific design in the 60s. So that you just want to see it. You want to look at it and bask in the beauty of each frame. What did you think, JJ? I had 
maybe four or five minds about it. And I think four of them loved it. And one of them was really unhappy with it. Tell us about the bad one first, because we need some conflict here. I'm so sorry to disappoint. The bad one actually wasn't the chess one. The chess one in me loved it. Because talk about frame to frame. They even set up the board to have very interesting positions. And she's playing brilliant moves that were consulted by former world champion Gary Kasparov to figure out. So frame to frame, in addition to the 60s feel to it, which I love, like as a chess player, it's like I was able to predict or like pause and go back later and like see absolutely brilliant chess being played, even though they managed to do it in a way where you didn't need to be following that at all to understand what was happening. So I loved that. What I didn't love was probably being, I mean, I'm like, I'm a cis dude and I've spent between philosophy and chess a lot of my life in pretty male dominated spaces. And I've seen how awful those spaces are for a lot of people who don't (laughs) identify as dudes. And the way that gender sort of was brushed over, I mean, it's acknowledged, but like very much outweighed immediately by Beth's genius. Like her prodigy is so appealing that the people who dismiss her immediately want to embrace her and then want to sleep with her. But that's cool because she wants to sleep with them too. So there's never any unwanted attention. And then they just kind of go on and she's very much accepted and it's acknowledged that she's this anomaly. But that's about as far as it goes. And like comparing that to like the stories of harassment I've heard at every level from women and girls who play chess at amateur levels to professionals who had opponents refuse to play them or throw huge fits and throw the pieces off the board when they lose to them. Susan Polgar, who is the first woman to become a grandmaster according to a certain set of specifications, although other women had gotten the title before her. So Susan Polgar like has this joke about how um, in her entire career, she's never once beat a man who was healthy. The joke being that every time she beats someone, they have an excuse for why they lost to her. Hearing that and just like how between like the sour grapes-idness. That's definitely the right word. The bad sportsmanship. Yeah. The sour grapes-idness of the people who play chess, they're down to like really vile levels of unwanted, unsolicited attention from inappropriate comments, including to like underage girls at clubs to just like men following women around harassing or just being very entitled to their time infection is just like this is the story i've heard time and time again in chess it's the story i've heard time and time again in academia it's not like the queen's gambit had a moral obligation to cover that and it's not like it becomes bad art because it doesn't acknowledge that but there's something in which the way that that is just papered over like i guess on one hand i could imagine that and i've talked to People, including women, are like, actually, it's really nice to just watch a story where that's not the focus. And I could see that being sort of appeal. But at the same time, yeah, so I don't know what I wanted. I don't think I want to say that like, oh, yeah, she had to be harassed for it to be good. I would say it's not papered over. It's downright subverted to the point where this is fantasy. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with fantasy, but that's really all it is. The graciousness and the magnanimity with which these Soviet masters lose to her and heap plaudits upon her is just utter nonsense. Is that not more accepted in the Soviet society, or at that time at least? They talk about how their female grand champion had never played a man. 
which is not even true, by the way, that it was her real name, but she wouldn't have been allowed to compete in like candidates tournaments with men, but she had played and beaten many, many excellent Soviet men. So that was a weird thing too, that like they even go out of their way to add this falsehood to Nona Gaprindashvili's career but then also make the Soviets much more magnanimous and gracious and losing to a woman. In my mind, it's inspired by a true story and not based on one, right? I mean, it's whatever fiction makes is useful for the storytellers. It seems roads they're going to go down, so I'll just roll with that. You know, we also read an article about the decision to cast such an attractive actor in the lead. And regardless of whether the character she's based on was or wasn't, it really informs the story to have Anya Taylor-Joy playing the part. One wonders, would she be more a victim of harassment? Is she more or less, maybe she's not taken as seriously because of her looks, but maybe she's more accepted, right? In the movie G.I. Jane, if any of you remember that, it was really important for them to pick as the first woman to become a Navy SEAL to be an attractive woman and not someone who looked butch because you have to be to look like something to be accepted as a female doing something pioneering. I think it's this combination where on one hand, yes, the fact that she's very conventionally attractive helps, but then I think also that could get her into a lot of unpleasant positions if she also didn't have a certain disposition where like she was pretty emotionally unattached and sexually open you know if when she's like a 15 year old and there's this grown-ass dude flirting with her if that made her feel really really bad that's a very different story than like her being this like blossoming 15 year old and this grown-ass dude is flirting with her and like she thinks of him fondly for the rest of the show right the exact same physical appearance of her leads to two very very different stories so yeah so yes to how she looks but i think also the disposition that she was given was very convenient I wanted to see more of flashbacks. I thought the young Isla Johnston, I see is her name, who played the the young version, was a really compelling, creepy young. You know, yes. probably will be <laughs> in some horror movies as the the bad seed child or something. One of the things that kept making me laugh, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, was that damn hair hairstyle. I was like, oh, see, I remember looking at my husband. See, we can tell it's the same girl because they have the same bangs. Like, no, we get it. It's about her. We don't have to have the same hairstyle our whole lives. Gosh. It was interesting to see right after that pawn sacrifice, which Brian already mentioned not being able to get through, because that she's basically in Queen's Gambit playing a fictionalized Bobby Fischer, you know, in similar circumstances. I don't know if quite similar attitude, but just the fact that Bobby Fischer in that portrayal is such a horrible person is <laughs> so repellent. Um, as opposed to, you know, you could really, really could have sold the, uh, it's not just that Beth Harmon in Queen's Gambit is unreliable and occasionally mean to people, but like there's so much more room for her just to be super obnoxious. I don't know how that would have changed the story. Perhaps a little less popular. Thinking back on the attractiveness thing, there is actually a, an article I read at one point where Anya Taylor-Joy actually doesn't find herself to be attractive. She thinks she's weird looking. And she is. She is a a strange looking woman who I think is absolutely beautiful. But, you know, she has that kind of alien look. So she doesn't really consider herself to be attractive. And But she says in the interview, her boyfriend says, you need to shut up about that because people are going to get really annoyed when you say that. (laughs) Yes, it's beautiful to look at her. She's an interesting looking person. But I think she's a really good actress. So to me, it didn't really bother me. The only time it bothered me when they were going on about when I felt like maybe they took advantage of it 
was when she was having her moment where she was at, you know, the bottom at her rock bottom and she looked really hot and her little undies <laughs> like smoking cigarettes and drinking. That was the only time where I was like, okay, come on. That is not rock bottom for most of us. We look way worse than that. Can you put some dried vomit on her face at least? <laughs> come on. She's a fantastic actress and I, I think she's a big reason that this is successful. My favorite part of the show was was just her acting, especially considering for like a non chess proficient public. There's so many scenes where like they add like a little bit of talking over the board or something, which you wouldn't really see at tournaments, at least at that level. You shouldn't see. But like most of those scenes are pretty much quiet and tense and you either don't see a board or most of the people seeing the board don't really understand what's on it. And so the only guide they have to what's happening is her eyes. And for her to carry that also like as somebody who wasn't a chess player, she like had to learn the moves and like referred to it as like sort of like going to her dance background and learning the choreography and having the chess consultant explaining to her the significance of the moves that she's making and being very specific that she had to remember the moves to play in the scene and play the correct ones. But like she's really selling it by understanding the significance of where she is in these games and what she's doing and how that goes. And especially as a non-chess player, but even putting that aside, like the degree to which she sells that and makes that compelling, I thought was impressive and really beautiful acting. Queen's Gambit looked even better to me as I looked at other chess media. Searching for Bobby Fischer, I think I had fond memories of. It's one of those things that, you know, because it's not obvious from the name what it's about, because it's not about Bobby Fischer and it's not actually about searching for Bobby. You know? But when I rewatched it this week, I was trying to figure out why I just hated it. And I think a lot of it is because it embodies a lot of cliches now that it might have been responsible for establishing of the quirky teacher and the Lawrence Fishburne as the guy in the park being all with his brash chess playing. I don't know. I'm just enraged by this small child that can just do magic and just is astounding everybody. After having just seen that, you know, this seemed like a very bad version of it by comparison to Queen's Gambit. I think it's a product of its time, Mark. I mean, I would trust your original viewing of it more than your rewatching of it. You are a parent. And what about the portrayal of parents in that? Because we don't get that in at all, really, in Queen's Gabbit in a meaningful way, the way stage parents or parents of prodigies who are pushing them or not pushing them or that famous scene in Searching for Robbie Fisher when the rules are very sternly being read to an audience. And of course, it's the audience of parents being told how they're going to have to behave and not not the children themselves. <laughs> so as the father of highly competitive children, Mark. That was one of the things that was making me actively angry of like the mother character saying the father character, like, he's just trying to win your love. It's probably an accurate portrayal. And I didn't realize until just now looking it up that it was based on the father's book about his real life chess prodigy son. So yeah, I'll accept <laughs> certainly that the dynamics there were accurate, but it kind of enraged me, though not nearly. Well, I, don't, I have another story, but I want to hear other people's chess media stories. JJ, it sounds like you'd seen quite a few of these. Any particular notable ones that people might not have heard of that we just haven't talked about yet? I like your point that maybe the reason why searching for Bobby Fisher feels so cliche is because it established a lot of these narratives. That's probably true. I mean, they're also probably just based off of truth. You know, like when I go to New York and play the hustlers in the park, they do act like that. When I see the old men chess teachers, they do act like that. So there might even be though some sort of godfather effect there where, you know, like the gangsters see the godfather and believe that's how they're supposed to 
act and dress and talk. So for, but I think it's also probably just very accurate. But I think that probably some of the movies that I've enjoyed the most. So there's one that's based off of a book called The Defense by Vladimir Nabokov, which is about a uh, very socially maladept chess prodigy. And there's a movie adaptation of that called The Lusion Defense. The character's name is Lusion, L-U-Z-H-I-N. And that's John Turturro plays Lusion in the film, and it's 2000. And that I don't know if it's a particularly good movie, but I think like, and it's also on like the trope of genius and madness intersecting. But at the very least, I thought that was a very interesting book because it's well, because it's well written, <laughs> and uh, because it's not so much about rooting for this prodigy to succeed. Like if you read the preface. The intro of the book, Nabokov tells you, the first thing he tells you is, this is a book about illusion suicide. He's going to end this book by jumping out of a window, taking his own life. So the whole question of, is he going to eventually overcome his demons and succeed, is answered in the negative before the book even starts. So it's much more a like study and intricate portrayal of this tragedy than it is this ride that I think so many of these chess movies give you this ride of, Will they, won't they? And of course, we're all gearing up towards this inevitable almost. Yes, they will. They will overcome. Their black friend will appear out of nowhere and loan them 3,000 bucks so they can travel to Russia. And then they will beat everyone and everyone will love them. You know, that kind of fantasy is really nice. But I think what I liked about the defense more, the book more than the movie is how it plays with those tropes, but doesn't give us the same happy ending that many of us can become addicted to in those stories. But it's not pie either, or one of these other... We could have a whole separate episode, and probably will at some point, on movies about genius. But I feel like there's only so many of those that you want to see, Beautiful Mind or whatever, and inevitably CGI is involved in showing you the crazy ways, the theory of everything, that the genius can see the world. And so in in this one, in Queen's Gambit, we had the, the chess on the ceiling, CGI stuff on the... I think it was searching for Robbie Fisher. It was like picture the board empty, you know, which is a much easier CGI to do <laughs> to just show the, the board empty. Did Coons Gambit or the other things you were seeing? I mean, were they fetishizing genius and damage in ways that were a little bothersome? Yeah, I guess it would be nice in a way to still see some sort of conflict within these people that's not just based on severe tragedy something to overcome that is a little less dramatic. She had to certainly overcome a lot in this. Yes, it was super heavy-handed with with the drinking and the tranquilizers. And the am I insane, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, like, what is the appropriate amount of that? We don't really want to watch a movie sans conflict. There is no movie there. Or there are far fewer episodes, at least. Just show more chess. <laughs> Just sitting and staring at the board real time. I thought one of the things that I was surprised with and I was nervous about throughout the Queen's Gambit was, oh, she's going to just descend. And that's the end of this will be that the genius goes too far. But in fact, by the end, I thought the message was really wonderful the way that she was able to bring together all these other people who wanted to support her and all these people who wanted to support chess in the United States in the same way that they were showing that the Soviets did it. For me, that was a, the big takeaway of what she was able to do. It wasn't about her own game. I also want to uh, second that. I think what I liked about The Queen's Gambit was in as much as it was a portrayal of genius, you know, like it still portrayed the work she had to do. And it also portrayed 
the work that she did with others. And with you have like some of her previously vanquished foes, like Dudley from Harry Potter showing up. With his new teeth. With his new teeth, looking hot, hot Dudley shows up. and <laughs> But, you know, with his like mountain of chess books that she's resistant to reading because it kind of is like pulling teeth to get through some of these very dry, long books that aren't filled with the kind of flashy stuff that characterized her game, but are nevertheless things that at her level she'll need to really understand like the back of her hand in order to go to that next level. But like seeing like the fact that she has teachers telling her what to read going through them with her, getting her to do that, working through that, and then seeing the Russians when the games are adjourned and they're going to finish them the next morning. All of the Soviet players are in the hotel room working on the adjourned position together. And I think for her, some of those scenes are meant to be a bit eye-opening to see like, oh, as much as I was attracted to this game because of its individual isolationist aspects, there's a degree to which I need to open myself up to others and work with others if I am going to be at that level, even if it's a small degree. And that's kind of a portrayal, especially of something as individualistic as chess, that I feel like a lot of these genius movies, either in chess or uh, something like math or something, it really is often portrayed as such a solitary thing. And it was really cool seeing it not portrayed as that. That was my favorite thing in the series. When Queen's Gambit started for the first episode in particular, when Beth is a girl, I thought perhaps she was on the spectrum. And as it progresses and just the way that she behaves and interacts, I I don't feel that she is so much anymore. I think she may be a little sociopathic, but not necessarily autistic or anything like that. But clearly that's something also that shows up now in movies about genius. And the imitation game comes to mind with Alan Turing and for as much as he actually suffered, in fact, because he was gay, what really was his internal struggle was just dealing with people on the whole. And I could see the appeal of this game, or I could see the possibility of someone who is slightly or profoundly, maybe not profoundly, but is slightly on the spectrum, might even have some benefits. And watching script spelling bee informs that a little bit for me. I don't know if anyone else watches that on TV, but what's your experience with maybe people who are somewhat on the spectrum, JJ, playing this game? I don't know a whole lot of chess players who publicly identify as being on the spectrum. I do know a few, and I try to not armchair diagnose. What I can say is that from what I understand about the autism spectrum, there's certain things that would pair really nicely with playing chess. A rigid adherence to rules, and so right away, pretty much always being able to anticipate at the very least, like what is and what is out of bounds, just at the level of legality, I think could be especially comforting to somebody who finds rules the sorts of things that can be rigidly compelled and seeing something more like social rules, you know, which are rules of convention that can be violated or breached or shift or something. I can imagine why that would be such a stressful thing if that was something that you found difficult to do and difficult to learn. It's like, these are the rules, you follow them. And then within them, you learn these more nuanced rules of where um, if somebody breaks a rule in the sense of making a bad move of not following a principle, you can punish them. And I can see that being really satisfying, too. And there's a famous chess teacher, Ben Feingold. There is one YouTube video of him giving a lesson where he was talking about how he loves teaching autistic students because he tells them to follow a rule and it doesn't occur to them that they don't have to listen to him. And they just like rigidly adhere to any advice he gives them. And, you know, I don't know how good or accurate this is of a, of a portrayal. So I feel like this connection to rules, I can imagine that being very comforting. I honestly find it comforting. I've never 
been diagnosed on the spectrum, just like kind of to us, there's a degree to which you know what will or won't happen and everything's predictable. Is it like the board is your world and that you can control what's going on on it and you don't have to worry? Yeah. While things will be unexpected in the sense of maybe a move you didn't anticipate, things won't be unexpected in the sense of the rook just blowing up in the middle of the game. (laughs) That can be very comforting. I mean, especially, I think, in these unprecedented times, just knowing what will happen is nice. So wizard chess does not convey enough of that. There's too many things that can happen with that, with the the rook actually exploding and dragon fire and all the random things that can be involved. Well observed, Mark. 50 points to Gryffindor. Have you seen Soul, the Disney movie, Soul? Not yet. Yes. One of the things that we started talking about genius, you know, just in the notes document and thinking about our other films that and other media that talk about it in such a fetishized way. I was reminded of a scene in Soul where they explain, and I put this in the notes document as well, when you get in the zone and you stay in the zone for too long that you can become a lost soul. So I saw The Queen's Gambit before I saw Soul. And I think that's kind of a theme that I saw out of Queen's Gambit that I took the most out of. And then I saw it yet again. And I keep seeing it now. There's in the United States and maybe another big trope about watching chess media is that it's always this US versus Soviet sensibility, right? And even in the movie I saw last night, The Coldest Game didn't have a lot of chess in it. But the idea that the Soviets are much more about like caring about this one of the the characters said, you know, we actually care about the human and the Americans just care about making money or the Americans just care about individualism. I think there's something interesting within all of that to start thinking about, yes, we do have a tendency for individualism and wanting to create something of our own, which can be awesome and creative and wonderful, but also can get us so into our own selves that we get true tunnel vision and we forget how much greater we can be when we do work with other minds who are also creative to create something wholly new. I think you're making a sale for singing chess that should be more interactive. I don't know how, because once again, I'm terrible at chess, but I haven't spent that much time with it either. And, you know, and that's another thing too, right? Is that what you were saying, JJ, is so many things we just decide, oh, you know, there's this other aspect of being like, well, they might be on the spectrum. That's why they're really good at chess. And that's also not fair. They work really hard at that as well. They might have a tendency to be very good at memorizing certain things, but it's not that they're just innately built to be good at chess. Yeah. We haven't figured out how to grow specimens for that just yet, but... (laughs) As a final thing, maybe we can give our pitches for season two because, you know, the Queen's Gambit is so successful. It'd be hard to not follow it up. I brought it up. I'll start, which is I, I think they should pull a last Starfighter thing. And it should be that the whole game of chess was invented as training and the aliens come and draft her to use her chess skills in the Galactic War. It's fantasy. So why not? I'll answer in a different direction, Mark, because Queen's Gambit was based on a chess Would you call it an opening, JJ? The name is an opening series of moves. Yeah, Queen's Gambit. So I have an article on chess.com that lists the weirdest chess openings. (laughs) Weirdest chess openings. It's hard to say. (laughs) Which is where uh, the toilet variation and the monkey's bum came from. Number three on the list is the hillbilly attack. And I think that's the series I want to watch. Erica is a self-described hillbilly. I think it's something you might want to make use of. Yeah, I want to be part of that. Hillbilly's playing chess. I'm in. I mean, she's based in Kentucky, so we can see how this gets there, right? Very true. And actually, there's my one beef, really, with the series. Where are any of the Kentucky accents? Excellent question. 
the end of the Bobby Fisher, the uh, Pond Sacrifice, where they show the real Bobby Fisher and what a freaking loon he'd become by the time he it was, you know, in the 2000s. That seems like a good pointer to the the real follow up season two is some aging, insane person. You know, you could make a real drama out of that. It would not be as popular. Just 70 year old Beth tweeting COVID is a hoax on tr- <laughs> 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 from Iceland. That is a wonderful note to end on. Thank you for joining us, JJ. Thank you so much for having me and letting me talk about chess for an hour. This was great. Thank you. Oh, it's great. Thank you. Woohoo. So long, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.